We are in Psalm 73 today, and Elder David read the whole psalm. You might have uh, observed a few sections or sort of topics addressed in the psalm, but one of them, verse 1, he starts out, Surely God is good to Israel. Uh, You can read that as a confident statement, I know God is is good to Israel. But if you read the rest of the psalm, you realize that uh, this psalmist, this author, Asaph, he's been thrown into doubt and discouragement, frustration and anger towards God. So verse 1 Surely God is good to Israel might be read in a more sarcastic tone. Or even in a good tone, he might be saying to himself, Hey, Asaph, hey, self, you know God is good to Israel. Whatever it is, it's not as you typically think of the psalm. Or maybe in our cultural moment, we tend to look at the psalms and say, uh, psalms are primarily religious, inspirational, beautiful poems that are meant to sort of like lift up the heart. But that's not every psalm. Like if you read through every psalm, you would see that it does dig into the heart. But it digs into like the real heart, the actual heart of a person who's trying to connect with God. What I'm trying to say is the Psalms Psalms keep it real. The Psalms are very honest, gritty, and uh, they explore every part of the human heart. That's what's beautiful about the Psalms. If you only read some Psalms, you'll probably read all the most beautiful ones where you're like a little lamb and God is a shepherd and then there's a pool and there's, there's, there's grass and everything. But this is, this is not just a Psalm, Psalm 73. This is the first Psalm of the third book of the Psalms. That's what you'll see if you open your Bibles to Psalm 73. You'll see it says book three. The Psalms were written and used in the nation of Israel over different times, but then they were collected into these books. And they were collected into the books intentionally to map out what the heart's life with God actually looks like. The reason I mention this to you is that this psalm is not here by accident. It's put at the beginning of book three to start off the sequence of what it looks like to be a worshiper of God. So whatever's going on in this psalm, put here as an important um, message to God's people about what it's like. A religious person will probably always, speaking of the heart, will always have a hard time really digging into the nature of their their true heart. Like a religious person is, and, and by religious person, I mean like someone who's trying to maintain or earn God's favor by their religiosity. They're always gonna have a problem with emotional intelligence or emotional honesty before the Lord. Because if you're constantly trying to impress God or you're, identity with God or his love for you is always contingent on your performance, then every time you find something in your heart that's deep down and dark and not godly, you're going to always have a tendency to push it aside and say, that's not the real me. The real me is a victorious, always joyful, always has it together religious person. And so you're going to tend to push away your feelings if you're a religious person. A non-religious person in our particular cultural moment that we live in today is going to tend to, if they're anything like just the dominant cultural belief, is that feelings and what's inside your heart is sovereign. Uh, Philosopher types call it expressive individualism. It's just like this, basically this idea that the answer to everything in our culture today is look inside yourself. Like what vocation should I do? What um, it extends to everything, and I, and I probably don't have time, time to even unpack it, um, and there might even be smarter people that can do that, but like your gender identity, sexual identity, vocation, self-worth, the answer from our culture 
in the end is look inside yourself. You have a problem? Are you not very confident? Look inside yourself. It's like a, it's a mantra for our modern day world. Everything is meant to be like the real self that you have is inside of you. And then if you have any problems, you're just not looking in there enough to discover what it is. And then as it goes, um, the, the, the message from our culture is you'll find out your true self by your desires. And once you discover your particular set of desires, then that's like the real you, which like other cultures today don't hold that assumption. Other people in different times didn't hold that assumption. But this is a long sort of rambling way to say um, religious people deny feelings. The average secular person in the postmodern West today um, idolizes and sort of makes everything about your personal feelings. But a Christian perspective on feelings falls right in line with God's attitude from the Psalms, which is to say, your heart is important. Your heart is deeply sinful. And if you let the doubts and frustrations and hangups that you have that are deep inside of your heart, if you let those out, that'll be a good way for you to like let God bring light to that dark part of your heart. So uh, in this psalm, we see anger and fear and hostility and a little bit of hope as well. And we should ask, um, this, if this is in the Bible, then what does it have to tell me about my heart, my hang-ups, my hostilities, and my need for hope? Because the Psalms help us to have a healthy relationship with what our, what's in our heart. So today we're going to talk about the heart of doubt, because that's what the Psalm is about. Um, doubting faith in Jesus is like having... Um, it's like you're in Shrek. I'm kidding. This is why this whole set design is here is because there's a Shrek musical. So I was thinking like, oh, I have like sort of a natural imagery uh, with this psalm. So this is actually helping us. Um, but I'm not going to do any like physical stunts uh, and jump off anything. But you have to just like imagine it with me cognitively. But um, doubt is like Jesus or the life that Jesus wants you to live is like at a distance. And then you're on like the edge of a cliff. And the, the other side of the cliff is over there. And uh, there's two things that you have to decide if you're like, going to try and get to this other side. One is, can I jump that far? Like, Am I willing to take the risk and jump that far and try and get to Jesus or get to the life that God has designed me for or I, God wants me to live? So can I get that far? Am I willing to jump that far? And then, of course, on the other side here, the question is, is this sturdy ground so that when I land... I'll have something that I can live on, like I can stand on. Will I be okay if I live with Jesus? Um, some of this, when I think of standing on um, shaky ground, I have this weird like thing in print, this, this bad memory imprinted into my brain, like inside out. It's like a core memory, you know? And uh, it was, it was, I was cliff diving with a bunch of other youth pastors when I was in my 20s, and I was like a cool young youth pastor. And, and so we were on like a youth pastor's trip. So like, all youth pastors, like summer camp, but like only youth pastors, which is like the craziest things happen on, on a houseboat trip with only youth pastors. And so um, it was, we all decided to go cliff jumping into this lake. And there was like the 100 foot option. And I was like, I'm just going to be honest, I'm a wimp. I will not do the 100 foot option. There was the 65 foot option and there was like the 45 foot option. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to do the lowest one because I need to keep up appearances. I'm cool and athletic and I'm risk taking too. Okay. So then I was like, okay, look, guys, let's all do the 65 foot option. We don't need to jump from 100 feet. 
but we're not wimps. So uh, a whole crew of us, and maybe 15 of us, jump off. And, and some of these, and I was in the end of the line. Um, some of these, they're doing flips. They're doing this, you know. Like some of them, they're just doing cool stuff off the thing. I was like, man, I'm so nervous, but I don't want to say out loud that I'm ready to go down to the 45-foot option. So they all get through their big cliff jumping thing, and it's just me and this older, faithful, unathletic youth pastor, like 50 years old or something, like ancient for a youth pastor, you know. So then it's just us, and he's like, hey, bro, are you a little nervous? Because I'm a little nervous. That's why I got to the end of the line. Anyways, before he takes off, his foot slips off the edge of the cliff, and he's like, I guess I'm going for it. So like he gives it a little push with one foot, and then all of a sudden, everyone just does that. You know what noise everyone made when they saw it going bad, right? Like, like that's everyone from down there up here is like, ah, this is not going to go well. And he's just like, I guess my life's over. And so he falls on the ground immediately. Everyone jumps into the water, pulls him out like this, you know, his entire butt was one bruise, you know, it was just like, and I ran into him years later and he was like, my whole life was affected by that moment. Like I, I got back problems now. And so anyways, shaky ground, if you're jumping off shaky ground, it's a dangerous thing, right? Oh, by the way, I went down to the 45-foot option, and I went down, I went for the safe, and I was like, okay, guys, it's over. Okay, so, um, yeah, so if doubt is like that, you see Jesus, you see this thing that Jesus wants you to live, and you're wondering, like, can I make it there? Am I willing to make that leap of trust? And once I get there, is this, like, actually a life I want to live? Um, the... The outline for this um, morning is going to walk through the different aspects of doubt. And so we're going to see the condition of doubt. Like, what is, what is doubt like that makes us feel separated from Jesus and questioning whether we want to be Christians or whether we're willing to become Christians? So the condition of doubt, the, the cause of doubt, what, what really creates doubt in our minds and hearts? And then thirdly, the cure for doubt. So the condition of doubt... Doubt feels like being on the edge of a cliff and slipping. That's what our psalm tells us. Uh, look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So doubt feels like slipping, that the foundation is unstable, and you're feeling like you can't stand on it. You're not permanent. You're not feeling uh, rooted to mix metaphors. And you have a sense of spiritual vertigo because that's, this is the imagery. You're on a mountain and your foot had almost slipped, the psalmist tells us. And you know when you're on the edge of a cliff or a, a, a great height, you get that sort of weird feeling where your mind is trying to reconcile how far down the, the bottom is how high up you are. You're not used to looking down those heights for most of us. And you get that dizzy, weird feeling where you're going like, I just, my brain can't reconcile it. And that's kind of a, a kind of vertigo. Your eyes and what you know are trying to communicate together and it's creating some sort of um, confusion in your head. And that's what causes the stumbling. So that's the doubt that the psalmist is talking about. So the definition of doubt in Psalm 73 is caused when someone, um, when something you see does not compute with what you know. Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So without digging into that too much, 
he sees something in life and he's saying, this does not compute with what I thought to be true. And that confusion between the seeing and the knowing is really the, the definition of doubt. One of the things that I think a lot of, a lot of, Christ, a lot of non-Christians, one thing that non-Christians don't usually know about Christians is that every Christian has doubts. Like a person who believes in Jesus, they're a believer, they have faith, they trust Jesus with their life. But the normal process for Christian growth is like, I became a Christian and then I sort of revisit it when something changes in life or some, a new question comes about or a new experience, you see something that's confusing. And a lot of Christians really do revisit their beliefs and go, am I crazy or did I become a Christian? You know, like, like am I still a Christian? Do I, is God still good? Is God still trustworthy? And most non-Christians don't know that like the average Christian, maybe other Christians don't know, you do have these moments of like revisiting the evidence, revisiting the truth of what you know, revisiting the things that you see. That reevaluation, deconstruction, reconstruction thing happens to most Christians. But my guess is the average non-Christian thinks that every Christian has a ton of blind faith and that they always have certainty. And that the reason they have certainty is because it's just blind faith. That's not necessarily the prescription here from Psalm 73. That's not the definition of faith from Psalm 73. My guess, too, is that the average Christian isn't always exposed to how much non-Christians doubt. If you get into a, a real discussion, like a real honest discussion where people aren't just like defending their belief system with people who don't believe in God, my experience is that a lot of Christians think, I have doubts and I'm kind of like ashamed of some of my doubts. I'm not sure if they're good doubts or not. But because the dominant culture that we live in is secular, and because a lot of the people who lead the institutions that matter in our world, the media, or the education system, whatever, like they're, all, they're mostly all secular people, like the, the elbow patch pr- professors that you all went to UCLA t- and studied under, you know, like those people are predominantly secular people. And so a lot of Christians think, I have doubts. They all seem like they have PhDs and are very confident. And so they don't doubt, but that's not true. Every kind of thinking person doubts their belief system. It's a very normal process of living in the world today. Everyone has doubts. Christians all have doubts. And non-Christians, even the ones that sound very confident and put together and say overly overstated things like, I just follow the science. I'm just a scientific person. I only believe things that are, that are really just proven. Like, okay, well, first of all, prove that in a lab. But then secondly, like everyone has doubts because the core things that everyone believes are all taken by faith. Like people will say, I only believe what's proven by science. And human life has worth and value. And those things do not compute. If the strong eating the weak is how I got here, and that's all that there is in the world, then justice or goodness or the value of human life or helping the poor or equity and equality, none of those things follow from that. And yet the average person who doesn't believe in God does believe those things. And that's another discussion for another day. What I'm trying to say is, the, like um, Charles Taylor I read an NYU professor this week that made the same case that secular people, religious people, the core beliefs that all of us hold are taken by faith. And any thinking person has times where they reevaluate what they believe and have some doubt. But Psalm 73 and the Bible is telling us that if that doubt is in your heart and that's really who you are and God can handle those questions and that doubt, then it stands to reason that bringing them out could be a helpful way for you to grow in your faith and actually lead 
to certainty. I'll give you a few examples. Psalm 73. This guy is clearly a successful follower of God. Asaph, whatever you know or don't know about him, he is a biblical author. And the fact that he's writing psalms means he's a, a leader in the nation of Israel. And this is a very spiritual person. And what kind of psalm does Asaph write? To start the book. When I see wicked people prospering, it frustrates me, God. And I don't know where you are or if you're good or if you're powerful, but I'm upset and it makes me doubt you. That's his psalm. So the end of the psalm is some of the most beautiful verbiage that we have about a person putting their hope in God. But you don't get to the end verbiage, trusting the Lord, if you don't start with an honest prayer of doubt. But you don't get the end of Psalm 73, that you are my strength and heart and you hold my hand through it all. Like, you don't get there unless you're honest about the doubts on the front ends. That's Psalm 73. Second example would be Thomas in John 20. Jesus has died on the cross. He's resurrected. His followers see him. Thomas doesn't see him. The followers go to Thomas and say, Jesus, the Messiah, resurrected from the dead. And Thomas says, you saw him, but, but did you touch him? I won't believe unless I touch him. I need to put my hands in the holes. I need to, I need to put my hand to the side. I need to like touch him and see. Otherwise, I will not believe. Like This is a skeptical, doubting attitude. So Jesus visits Thomas. Jesus does not shame Thomas and say, how dare you ever doubt me? I'm the Messiah after all. Didn't you, didn't you listen to anything I said? Come on, Thomas. He doesn't do that. He lets Thomas gain the evidence that he sought. And then Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And for Thomas, he doesn't get to that kind of worship and trust. My Lord and my God unless he gets the evidence because he was honest about the doubt. So there, again, the doubt leads to the trust. And then third example would be Nathan. So Philip, in John chapter 1, Philip tells Nathan, the Messiah, the Messiah we've read about in our Bibles, we've met him. Like of all times in human history and of all people around the world, we met the Messiah and, and uh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And do you remember what Nathaniel's response is? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Which is both uh, maybe a classist sort of thing, like that's kind of a podunk town, and can anything good come from there? What, what's the Brea equivalent of that? Is Placentia the equivalent of like, if we're, if we're snooty Brea people, be like, can, can, did Jesus come from Placentia? I don't know, I'm trying to trash somewhere close, but it would be La Habra. Okay, it'd be La Habra, sorry. <laughs> Um, so, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? But it also was a logical objection because he's saying, no, no, I've read my Bible, and it says that he's coming from Bethlehem. So you say he's Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a whole story behind that, of course, but it's a logical um, question. And then Nathaniel becomes one of the apostles because Philip says, as a response to his doubt, come and see. So Philip treats it like a good doubt, which is to say, um, I'm not going to overestimate the strength of your doubt. I'm not going to say, oh my gosh, no one's ever questioned Jesus before. That's a great question. Maybe my faith is stupid. He says, no, just come and see. And so he doesn't just, he's not overwhelmed by the doubt. And he's not, oh, he's not dismissing the doubt by saying, this is the Messiah. Fine, you're not in the club. 
you go do something else. We're going to find righteous people who don't have doubts. He's saying, no, no, just come, and I'm in process with you, and let's gain the evidence that you need. So doubt is like that. Doubt is the incongruous feeling that you get when what you see in the world does not match what you know about God. It's normal. Everyone does it and can lead to unprecedented spiritual growth for you. So what is the cause of it? The cause of doubt in the believer and in a non-Christian person who's sort of engaging with the idea of Jesus and following Jesus, doubts are completely subjective. When we have doubts, we think they're more intellectual than they actually are. We think they're very intellectual, and and sometimes we feel like because we have a doubt and we don't have an answer to that doubt, therefore there must not be an answer at all. So because we have have so much information at our fingertips, we think if I've not been exposed to the answer yet, then nobody must have an answer, which is just not true. So we have that sort of arrogance because of the like everyone's got a smartphone thing in our world today. But we also have this feeling where we think it's incredibly intellectual, but in fact, it's something different mostly. It's like the recipe for doubt is like three parts experience, one part a secret ingredient, I'll tell you about in a second, and one part logical, credible, important questions that are worth processing. Three parts experience where you're saying the world around me does not feel or look to be like God says he is. Secret ingredient, tell you in a second. And one part, a normal, important, logical thing to work through. And so it's that mixture that creates doubt, that is the cause of doubt. So what caused Asaph's doubt? Well, it's a very important topic. It's basically the question of how how long, God, are you going to let evil persist in the world? And how are you good in light of the wicked people who are prospering today? That's what Asaph's saying. Verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Oh, what I was saying before, I'm sorry, I skipped over it, was that our doubts are incredibly subjective. They're just, they're very much located in our cultural moment, like what people believe today. They're also located very much in our personal experience and our own unique subset of like experiences and hurts. And the funny thing about doubt is it's easy to get dismissed when you have doubt because you'll say, this experience made me question whether God even exists. And when you tell somebody else about it who doesn't have that same personal experience, it's so common for them to say, bro, that's your reason for doubting God? Yeah, that doesn't even matter to me. Like, it matters to you. You've got the experience. You've got the hang-up. It's your life that you're talking about here. But it's so easy for other people to, it's just hard to engage with every doubt as though it's important because you don't have the same experience. And so sometimes people will say, um, prove to me that God exists, and then I'll become a Christian. And then you give some support for why belief in Jesus is stronger than unbelief in Jesus. And a lot of times the response is, oh, that's the evidence? I don't like that evidence. I want this kind of evidence, which is to say doubt is completely subjective. It's located in your personal thing and your personal wants for God. And if you were to snap your fingers and make God well, God would end up being a lot like you and that he would prove himself and that he would create the world and make the story of his interaction with humankind a very particular way. And you get to the conversation and if you're honest, you start to hear people say, 
I want evidence, but I want this kind of evidence. I want the evidence that I'm expecting from God. It's incredibly subjective. I'm not even dismissing it. I'm just saying we have to be honest about the fact that your doubts are different than your doubts are different than your doubts, and we have to process them that. Asaph's got his own doubts. He's saying there are self-promoting and ruthless people that are successful and, and good, generous, kind people in God's world are struggling. Verse 4 through 12 is describing all of the wicked people. Can I just read through it quickly? Let's just engage in Asaph's objection to God. And look at all the verbiage, look at all the vocabulary and the way he describes his, the thing that's causing his doubt. The wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. For their callous heart, from their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Let me pause there. So he's saying they're successful and healthy and wealthy, and, and not only that, but in verse 10, they're seen by a lot of other people as wise. And other people are looking to them saying, give us what you have. So they're popular as well. Verse 11, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. So here's the point, and I'd like to make it relatively quickly. But Asaph saw the injustice of wicked, violent, brutal people succeeding, and the doubts presented um, presented that the, the doubt presents itself as intellectual, but it's mostly three parts experiential. And here's his response in verse 13. Surely in vain, this is sort of his feeling. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So the funny thing about the cause of doubt is that it involves a lot of I. Like in the end, he's very honest in saying, I actually would be okay being one of the prosperous, wicked people. My problem is I'm not prosperous. I'm being godly and I'm not being rewarded for it. In essence, he's saying it's in vain that I've kept my heart pure because I would be okay. But it's the seeing of the injustice. It's the experience of it. The feeling in your stomach of watching evil people succeed and saying, God's supposed to be this whole big deal, and look at us, pushed down, not rich, not powerful, but with a pure heart. So he doubts God's character because the injustice he saw was affecting him, experiential. And this is the difference, like faith and the opposite of faith, if you ask most people, would be something like reason. Like, you're a person of faith, or you're a person of reason, you're like a reason person that's not religious, not a Christian, or you're a Christian person who sort of just ticks a part of their brain off and says, I don't need answers because I just want to be a follower of Jesus. The opposite of faith in the Bible is not 
reason, though. Think about um, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, we live by faith, not by sight. And this psalm in the beginning is saying, I'm seeing things that don't seem like they're right, but I know something about God and that he's my portion forever and that he's an eternal God and that he's powerful. So the opposite, the, the issue of doubt here is not nearly as logical as we typically think. It's actually much more experiential because we're saying my experience of seeing and feeling and living with this thing that's confusing is making me question what I know to be true. And this happens all the time. Uh, college person, young person leaves for college and maybe they had a really Christian upbringing and they left for college with a deep down belief that they never said out loud, which is that non-Christians are evil or miserable or both. And then you go to college, away from mom and dad, and you meet virtuous, kind, joyful non-Christians. And for a lot of those 19-year-olds, it makes them go, oh, I'm questioning whether any of this faith thing is true or not. So let me ask the question then. Did that person, in my little metaphor case study, did that person get any new information about the credibility of Jesus of Nazareth the resurrection in the Bible? No. What they experienced and saw made them question maybe a faulty belief because God's grace means that not every single Christian is going to have their life better and have their life more together than every single non-Christian. God's grace is the way you're saved, not through achievement. And so there's no guarantee at use being like every Christian is going to have perfect peace and joy. Okay, so that's a tangent. But like, is there any new information? No, it's just about the experience. Experience number two. Um, I have so many friends and in the church, there's something about turning 30 and being single that makes that the whole expectation of what God's going to do in your life plan in your 20s just kind of like it throws it all up in the air. And so many people, that the trial of turning 30 and being single or, or not having the career that you want, um, just it makes you reevaluate. And I remember having that same feeling at 32. And it's like, man, I'm not nearly as a mature individual as I thought I would be. I thought I would just be levitating off the ground with spirituality at 30 and it just didn't happen. And like all of that makes you go, what I'm seeing around me does not match what I thought to be true, but that's an experience thing, not a logic thing. It's not saying you don't turn 30 and all of a sudden you get new information about God. No, your experience is changing. So, uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, says this, Doubts come when personal experiences make what your mind knows unreal to your heart. Doubt comes when personal experiences make what your mind knows unreal to your heart. And faith is holding on to something in spite of its appearances. So what do we do with doubt? And I really want to emphasize the, the close to this sermon as a solution to it. I have four sort of points of application on what you can do with the doubt that you have going through it right now or in the next season of life when you'll face it. The cure for doubt is in verse, uh, part of it is in verse three. You have to doubt your doubts. You, you have to doubt your doubts. You have to be honest enough to doubt the thoughts behind your doubts and the reasons behind your doubts. N notice in verse 3, he says, very honestly, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Asaph is honest about the cause of his doubt. His motives are clearly not pure motives. He's saying, I wanted to be like them. I envy the fact that they're healthy and successful and respected and admired in the, the world that I live in. And, I, and it caused me to doubt. And so what that means is doubt is three parts experience, one part credible intellectual questions, and one part self-motivated, self-absorbed, sinful tendencies. Every doubt has that same recipe. There isn't a doubt that comes into your life that isn't in some part our self-centered motives. Because even unjust suffering and pain, it has a way of, of putting to flame expanding and bringing out the sinful tendencies that you do have. Like even when something unfair happens to you and you're justifiably in one part saying, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Like there's no lesson. I don't see a lesson to gain. I don't see how it's fair. I don't see how anything good can come from this. Even that important one part question tends to bring out in us the sin that says, I'm one of the good ones, God. I don't deserve anything like this, and you know it. I'm, I'm better than other people. Or um, I've obeyed you, I did my part, and you need to hold up your end of the bargain. So even unjust suffering that God is not looking at you saying you deserve exactly that brings out in us our self-righteousness towards other people. I'm one of the good ones. Or our, our um, entitlement towards God. I have worked hard and I'm one of the good ones. Or it brings out arrogance in us that says, God, because I don't know the reason that you allowed this bad thing to happen to me, therefore there must not be a reason. And that's an arrogance of our knowledge, of our spiritual knowledge, of our ability to be better than God. Whatever it is, it brings out that arrogance in us to say, I know you don't have a reason for it because I can't think of it. So even unjust suffering and injustice brings out that same sin. Three parts experience, one part intellectual questions that are important to engage in, and one part sin that Asaph is saying, I have an envy to be one of the rich ones, one of the loved ones, one of the accepted ones. And so the process of us growing through our doubts is filtering out the ungodly motives and then filtering out and sort of being aware of our personal experiences so that when you filter out, what you get is the intellectual question that you can actually deal with honestly with God. Like, like I've been hiking before and been out of water, but then somebody more responsible on the hike brought one of those water filter pumpy deals where you put in like dirty water that you wouldn't be caught dead drinking. But then what gets, you, you push it, you twist it, you bop it, you pull it, whatever it is, you get all the things that brings out the filtered water. And when you've been hiking and you're hot and you didn't bring enough water, there's like a sweetness to that filtered water. And that's the process of filtering out the ungodly motives because if you never did it, you would just be circling in your head with doubt. Especially if you're a religious person that pushes them down because when you, when you deny what's in your heart, when you put down the doubts and you hide them and you say, I, I don't want to tell anyone else about this, what you do is you sort of actually treasure it in your heart and then every time something bad happens, every time that thing gets triggered and flared up, you still have that doubt. You never dealt with it. And so it just comes out all the time in all the different experiences because you never, like, I'm mixing metaphors here, but you never brought it to light so that it can be that great disinfectant. Like, you have to bring it out. And, um, 
And so you have to, again, I'm mixing metaphors, but you have to filter those things out so you can actually like, deal with what's actually going on between you and the Lord. Okay, that's my first um, application point. You have to doubt your doubts. Then you have to lean in to the process. Verse 17, he's doubting God until he entered the temple, the sanctuary of God, and then he understood the final destiny of the wicked. The final destiny here is... In the rest of the psalm, if you were to read it, you would realize that the things that they live for are temporary. And it's said in different ways, that the, the things that the wicked live for are crumbling. They're falling apart. They're not eternal. They're not of a loving and eternal God. And so they're insufficient to provide what they actually need for a good life. Basically, um, the psalmist is saying, I'm on this precipice, and I'm watching people jump to a different place but then the footing that they're standing on is falling apart. That's the destiny of the wicked. So the, the, the conclusion that the psalmist arrives at that brings him peace and hope with God only happens in verse 17 when he goes to the temple. Think about the temple. There's music. There's smells. There's other people. There's postures. There's kneeling. There's walking. There's sacrifice. And all of that experience, oh, and thinking, and processing, and, and reading scripture, and thinking about it. And it took all of those things as a prescription to deal with the doubt. And here's what I'm trying to say. If you're doubting God, don't think it's just a cognitive thing. You didn't just think your way into doubt. And so you're not going to just think your way out of it. It's not just a cognitive effort. And so if you're in doubt, it might feel like a tendency is to remove yourself from the temple of God, so to speak, to the people of God or from Christian practice, while you figure some things out. But the prescription here is to say, you didn't think your way into the doubt. And so if you want to give Jesus a chance to give you some new information, bring out some things in your heart, it needs to involve you being with music, uh, seeing music, praying, standing, kneeling confessing and being a part of Christian community. You didn't think your way into it. It's going to take some experiences that you've got experiences to get into it. It's going to take some experiences to get out of it. And the temple is the image of that. So you might be thinking, okay, I'm not a Christian. I'm not sure where I stand with God. Am I supposed to pray? Yeah, you should. Am I supposed to sing songs even though it's like, I don't, I don't want to sing to Jesus? Yeah. If you want to give Jesus a chance to like actually show you who he is and what's in your heart and why you're resistant to him, then you need to do the practices. There's so many things in this world that capture your imagination and your practice and your heart. And there are actually very few Christian things that do all of that. And so you need to give Jesus a chance to capture your mind and your, you know, even in some traditional churches, uh, they, they light incense on fire in a metal, they call it a censer. And if you go to an Egyptian Orthodox church, which is actually one of the oldest traditions of Christianity in the world, and they like haven't changed a dang thing, uh, they're still reading like basically Greek on the screen like during church. And it's like, if you don't know Greek, good luck. You know, <laughs> The worship songs are in some Egyptian Coptic thing. Okay, so um, they will walk up to you and to symbolize the spirit of God in every single believer, they shake that flaming metal ball at everyone's face. <laughs> Literally, it's like, it takes 20 minutes. And, and I had a sinus infection the one time I went to a Cop Cop Coptic church so I was like blowing my nose and, and my friend's like, 
did someone smoke weed? <laughs> like, this like, it smells like incense in here. It's like, no, man, there's like a spiritual meaning to it. So like they, they swing it at you because it's meant to like engage your senses to be like, oh, the spirit of God is this smoke that, uh, that is hovering over us as we worship and is in every person. So Disney pours billions of dollars into creating a story that captures your mind and your emotions. And then if you're like me watching Marvel movies, I'm like in my chair going like, you know, like it captures your physicality sometimes too. And like, like billions of dollars that are meant to wrap you up into a mythos, into a story that leads you just to sort of be a Disney fan. There's a whole world around it. And then the story of God if it wants to compete with that, to let Jesus be true to all of you, it needs to involve singing, praying, kneeling, confessing, people, sights, smells, sounds. So be in church and don't disengage in the seasons when you doubt or be in community. Pray when praying sounds like talking to a wall. And um, I heard someone say the other day, Read your Bible even when it feels like eating sandpaper. Like you, you have to just engage the practice to get all of you exposed to Jesus. Okay, that's my third application. I'm sorry, my second application. My third application is that you need to compare foundations. So one philosopher that I read this week from New York University made this observation. People often feel like they have a gap between them and Jesus. And they're asking the question, am I willing to jump that far? And is the ground going to be sturdy there if I land? Verse 18 says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. So in the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist is saying, I'm, I almost slipped. I feel like my faith is on shaky ground. And yet, what you've shown me is that their foundation is completely slippery. So the philosopher made this point. Most people, when they think about knowing God, think, I'm unwilling to make a leap of faith. But what they don't realize is that behind them is a further leap. The better way to explain this would be to say, everyone lives by faith. And so you can't say, I'm not a faith person. Because if you turn away from Jesus, the secular materialistic worldview that says you are only the material world and your life means nothing, might get to a point where if you engage with the the history of the Bible, the truth of Jesus, the goodness of God's grace, you might very well, like this one professor I was reading, get to the point where you say, this leap takes too much faith. And so it's time for me to re-engage with whether Jesus is a better foundation. So you, you can't just say, it's either perfect, hypothetical, every question I've ever had is answered, or if not that, um, then blind, ignorant faith. It's faith or faith, and you have to make a decision, what's the, what's the more sturdy ground? And when you, compete, when you compare and compete the worldviews in the world, that's where you get to the fact that you feel certainty around the claims of Jesus. Because it's not like anyone in this world couldn't just say, you know, we all might just be in the matrix and none of this matters. This is all just a simulation. And like a really fast computer one day will probably just create the simulation anyway. Like any philosopher could always just take whatever you think is true and say, yeah, but you don't really know we might all just be in the matrix. And that's just the world we live in. So it's faith or faith. And then we look back to Jesus and go, logically credible, 
existentially satisfying, good for the world, good for my life. Let me re-engage with the claims of Jesus and see if it's a leap that I can make in comparison to everything else. You have to compare foundations. And then lastly, you have to feel for his hand. Verse 23, his conclusion in the psalm is, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. So what the psalmist realizes is that through this whole thing, God was there with him the entire time. A lot of times people will ask me, you know, I I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I kind of want to be a Christian. I just can't get there. People have hang-ups, barriers to belief. There's a part of me that wants to have faith in God. I I just don't have faith in God, but I want it. And for me, my experience has been that the sense of God's absence is oftentimes the sign of his presence. The part of your heart that's saying, God, I want you to be there. Will you help me to process my personal experience, my logical questions that do need answers, and my personal sin? God, would you just break those away as I become more emotionally aware, more logically aware? And will you just help me to have all the barriers blown away and have it just be me and you? And that's the story of faith for a lot of people who are thinking people of faith. And that's my hope for you. You feel some encouragement if you have a problem with God that the sense of his absence is actually the sign of him working on you and working with you because you might very well get to a place where you realize looking back through all your doubts that God had you by the hand the entire time pulling you along through all of your stuff so that it can be just you and him.